The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 5th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasco. Sam Hinkie is the former GM of the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team. But they kept losing and he got fired. Now, it's not really as simple as that, but it kind of is as simple as that. Anyway, Hinky's a very smart guy who makes references to his intellect or at least throws out breadcrumbs that make their way into articles about Sam Hinky. References that underline Mr. Hinky's erudition. To wit, this was from the latest Sports Illustrated. Hinky is super keen on a lot of topics. This is a man who listens to books on three times speed on Audible. Because if you really want to understand something, there's no better way than to spend six hours reading a book someone spent five years researching. Density of information. He espouses a growth mindset and the ability to be a lifelong learner. Now, as a podcast listener, you have the ability to hear me on two times speed. Go ahead and try it. I'll come back. Not that pleasant, eh? But audiobooks do indeed offer the three times version. 20 seconds to listen to a minute of speech. Of course, audiobooks, a gist slash hang up and listen co-investigation reveals, are much slower than they need to be. For instance, you know how slow Garrison Keillor talks on the radio? Well, here he is reading poetry in an audiobook. Master of beauty, craftsman of the snowflake inimitable contriver, and dower of earth so gorgeous and different from the boring moon. Good Poems by Garrison Keillor. Now, you can't actually listen to that via this podcast in three times speed, because like I said, podcasts don't offer three times speed, but I will provide this service for you. Here on The Gist, we will speed the following work up to 1.5 speed, and then you can take it, plug in your double speed of our 1.5 speed, and thereby achieve three times speed. So here's Emily Dickinson. Could I stand by and see you freeze without my right of frost, death's privilege? Actually, I cannot see super keen Sam Hinkie wasting his time on the Bard of Amherst, so let's play Phil Jackson, Sacred Hoops, at 1.5 speed. The real reason the Bulls won three straight NBA championships from 1991 to 1993 is that we plugged into the power of oneness instead of the power of one man and transcended the divisive forces of the ego that have crippled far more gifted teams. Now, what you need to do is go back. You play that 1.5 sped up version in your podcast player at two times the speed that it offers, and you have achieved Sam Hinkie three times speed. It is a clunky workaround, but so was Jaheel Okafor to some degree. There are, to be warned, there are some books that this doesn't work that great on. I give you Colonel Paul G. Kelly's Learn to Be an Auctioneer. 15, 17, high 20, 22, high 25, 27, high 30, 32, high 35, 37, high 40. 50, 50, 47, 50, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, 47, 50, On the show today, I spiel about what the media can and cannot apparently do. Apparently, they can be a firewall against normalizing a racist, but they can't correct a simple statement of fact. But first, you care, I care, we all care about health care, but no one cares, like Sarah Cliff of Vox. I understand the law of the sea treaty. I can tell you the difference between the Shiites and the Sunnis. 
Paygo in Congress? Yeah, that's no problem. It's just Medicare, Medicaid, healthcare stuff. Migo, my eyes glaze over. Is it the jargon? And the weird thing is that I've never been to see, and I haven't been to any of the Sunni or Shiite sites yet. I use healthcare. Oh my God, what a morass. So the best person to explain this and how the laws might change is Sarah Cliff. She is a writer and covers healthcare for Vox. She's also just the most sparkling uh, member of the Weeds podcast panel. So Sarah has a new podcast uh, coming out. It doesn't have a name, but what can you... And hello, Sarah, but what can you tell me about that? Um, I can tell you it is a podcast about how policy decisions um, affect real life people and that the pilot of it, you can now listen to it and I encourage you to listen to it on the Weeds feed. Let's just, before we talk about how Obamacare might be replaced, repealed and replaced, root branch, root branch and twig, where'd it go wrong? It's never had buy-in across the political spectrum. Um, Obamacare was passed completely by Democrats. No Republicans voted for it. And since 2010, when it passed, Republicans have just been on this repeal, repeal, repeal march. And I think a lot of that, and there have been, you know, Obamacare has driven the uninsured rate to an all-time low. It's at 96 percent right now. It's never been been that low before in American history. But it's had problems. Premiums are spiked a lot in this year. The average premium increase was 22 percent. That's quite significant. So I think it's that combination of lack of political buy-in from Republicans and some of the challenges the law has experienced. Those together kind of leave Obamacare in a very vulnerable space position now that we have um, Republicans in the White House and in Congress. Right. So I understand the lack of political buy-in, but the same could be said about, say, the stimulus. And while Republicans will still say the stimulus was a waste of money, there's a lot of evidence that it wasn't. And I think regular people look at where the economy went and they might not connect the dots, but they say, you know, the proof pretty much is in the pudding. Why doesn't it work that way with Obamacare? Why is the perception of people, or maybe it's not people, it's just politicians taking advantage of it. Why is the perception that it's not working just because of these, uh, just because of the rate increases? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it is the perception of people. It's not just politicians. There's some wonderful survey research that the um, nonprofit Kaiser Family Foundation has done where they have found, gosh, I might get the exact numbers wrong, but they have found that um, a sizable chunk of the United States, about one-fifth, thinks the uninsured rate is at an all-time high when mm-hmm. it is, in fact, as I told you, at an all-time low. Democrats really had this theory you were talking about that that once people got Obamacare, they would like it. They would get health insurance. This is so much better than not having health insurance. I can go to the doctor. And people would really rally around the law to save it. And that hasn't happened. Um, Americans have remained completely split, mostly along partisan lines on Obamacare um, since the law passed. And I think one thing that is unique about Obamacare is that when people sign up for it, they don't really know that it's Obamacare. So like you don't go and like you don't get a card that says like I have the Obamacare plan. With you a go on a website of Obama called Health- and the dog yeah. on it. Yeah, that <laughs> right. Cool. Yeah, there's like no Obama <laughs> phones or anything. Like you go on a website called healthcare.gov and you buy like a plan from Blue Cross Blue Shield or from Aetna or Humana. So if someone asked you like what kind of insurance do you have, you'd say like I have Blue Cross Blue Shield. You wouldn't say I have Obamacare. Same is true for Medicaid expansion. You know, there's 15 million people who have joined Medicaid since uh, Obamacare expanded the program. 
they don't have a card that says, like, I got Medicaid because of Obama. Like, they have a card from their state Medicaid program. Which, by the way, in states like Kentucky, that's like Kentucky Connect spelled wrong or spelled right in Kentucky. Yes. Like, that was a great <laughs> that was a great branding. I mean, this is at least at least Trump knows how to put his name on things. Let's just say that. It felt like great branding, like, up until now. Like, I've actually I've been doing a bit of reporting on Kentucky. And so the backstory is Kentucky, they had probably one of the best functioning state marketplaces. If you remember in 2013, when healthcare.gov launched and completely did not work, the Kentucky website um, called Connect, spelt with a Y, uh, was working totally fine. And they really like did not talk about Obamacare. You know, they told people, oh, you're signing up for Connect in Kentucky. It wouldn't be very popular to talk about Obamacare. Some people there are now wondering if that was a mistake, if they hid the Obamacare side of Connect too well so that when people went went to vote, they're like, well, I, I love Connect, but I hate Obamacare. It's like, let's vote for Trump and repeal repeal all of that. And it starts again from like that really partisan nature of the way Obamacare was passed that leads to these marketing decisions in Kentucky to not talk about Obamacare. And I think it's fair to think that might contribute to then people not knowing that, that, that this Connect thing is Obamacare and putting the law in like a very politically vulnerable situation. Right. But lest we give the impression that it's only people, it's only ignorance and it's only people not understanding, there are real problems with Obamacare, whatever you call it. But what I want to know is the increase in in premiums. Is that reflecting of anyone who had insurance beforehand through their employers, as most people do. I mean, here's the bottom line for me. People are saying this program is a disaster. And the number one thing they say is, is well, you know, there was a little bit of over-promising. Maybe you can't always keep your doctors fine. But the number one thing they say is that the premiums rose 22%. But aren't those premiums on people who wouldn't have health care otherwise? Yeah. So I th- I think it is definitely true Obamacare drove up premiums, but there's a reason it did that. It, it gave coverage to a lot of sick people who who have very high health care costs. You know, when you look at how Democrats typically think about health care, they felt it was important to give older, sicker people who had been kept out of the individual market access to insurance coverage. And that raises premiums for the young and the healthy people who were getting coverage no problem, who weren't getting denied for pre-existing conditions because they didn't have them. So you put, you know, these older people into the pool and everyone ends up paying more. I would say one thing that offsets those premium increases are subsidies. So anyone who's below 400 percent of the poverty line, which is about forty four thousand dollars for an individual, um, I think about ninety thousand for a family of four, they're getting some kind of help from the government to pay for their premium. So it is true premiums are going up 22 percent this year, um, but most people are getting some subsidies to help offset that. But but so we are in the individual market. If you were someone who was young, who was healthy, who was buying coverage in 2013 before Obamacare, like you are probably getting a worse deal than you were before. But it's creating more of a social safety net. And I think Republicans have some very different views about whether those young, healthy people should be getting the worst deal they are under Obamacare and, and whether to revert back to something that looks closer to the pre-Obamacare landscape. Okay, let's talk about how things might change. Now, what everyone agrees on, almost everyone agrees on, is we have to cover people with pre-existing conditions. Only, that's like saying everyone agrees on we like nice parks, but, you know, it's the taxes we don't like. Well, you can't have one without the other. So take me down the line. If you want the pre-existing conditions, don't you also have to buy in some things that people very much disagree on? 
Yeah. So here's here's one thing I want to be clear on, because I think it's been very confusing to watch the pre-existing conditions debate, uh, because the two parties actually have different views on pre-existing conditions, and it gets kind of glossed over um, in a way that's easy to miss. So under Obamacare, um, you cannot be denied coverage if you have a pre-existing condition, and insurance companies cannot charge you more if you have a pre-existing condition. Under, you know, I've read seven of the Republican replacement plans, um, and under basically all of, I think all except one, insurance companies cannot deny you coverage if you have a pre-existing condition, but they can charge you more if you have a pre-existing condition. And that is quite important because- Of the seven plans, do which ones say they can charge you whatever they want and which ones So most of, of them, like the, the plan from House Speaker Paul Ryan, the plan from um, Trump's pick to run HHS, um, Representative Tom Price, I'd say most of the kind of ones that are really shaping um, the debate right now all so and it's in a particular situation. So uh, the way the Republican plans typically work is they say um, insurance companies can't deny coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. However, if you do not maintain continuous coverage, if you have a break in your insurance for a few months because, like, let's say you lost your job, couldn't afford it, forgot about it, thought you were healthy, whatever, um, insurance companies because do have to offer you coverage, but they can charge you. A much higher premium. Okay, but what so, about people who haven't had this lapse in coverage? How many of the Republican plans say you have leukemia and they can't, and the insurance companies can't reject you? But here's your premium: it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So if you don't have a break in coverage, you're fine. But right. you know the latest figures—they're a little bit old, but they sh- they showed that a very significant, like mil- it's tens of millions of Americans who have a break in coverage at some point. Yeah. Well, that was those are stats based on the fact that there wouldn't be this huge penalty. In fact, this catastrophic, life ruining penalty for a break in coverage. So, yeah. So I mean, I mean, it, and I think of the continuous coverage provision as the replacement for the individual mandate. It's the policy that's meant to tell people like you really need to keep up your health insurance because mm-hmm. you could face some pretty severe consequences yeah. down the line for for not keeping it. But it strikes me as more punitive than the individual mandate um, in that it can really follow you for quite a long time, whereas the mandate is kind of a one-time yearly fee that you pay. Exactly. You miss a month. I mean, you know, your check gets lost in the mail or you forget to mail it or whatever. That's it. You're out hundreds of thousands of dollars. But is there any logic to the break-in coverage idea or is it just a way to jack up prices because a lot of people are going to make the mistake? There's policy logic to it. It's the same thing as the individual mandate. The goal is to get healthy people into the market. The individual mandate does it with a fine. The continuous coverage provision basically tells people you still need to buy coverage when you're healthy, because Mm -hmm. if you don't, you will get charged a lot more when you need it. So the goal of of the individual mandate, of this continuous coverage thing, there's a policy aim. I, I don't think you'll hear Republicans rolling this out saying, like, this is our replacement for the individual mandate. But the two policies are essentially doing the same thing in, in different ways. So you've read the seven plans, and God bless you. Uh, Paul Ryan oh. has the Pearl Jam Better Man plan. Better Care, what is his care? Better, <laughs> better care. Way. Yeah, Better Way. <laughs> and then uh, and then Orrin Hatch has one. Now, what elements are almost certainly going to be in whatever the Republicans pass? So I think there'll be a huge scaling back of Medicaid expansion. So right now, um, 15 million people have joined Medicaid since Obamacare expanded the program in 2014. And I think that program i i don't know if there how much it'll be replaced um, but i think in any case most medica uh, most republican obamacare replacement plans or um, republican budgets they really cut medicaid a lot so i think that's one thing you can expect to see 
Um, I think this is going to get like kind of wonky and in the weeds, but I promise it really matters. I think you're going to see the structure of how people get subsidies change in, in a way that'll be very important. Right now, Obamacare subsidies are, are um, income based. So the poorest people get the most help with the idea being they can't afford insurance. They need more money to help pay for it. The Republican plans generally have age-based um, tax credits, meaning that the size of your credit, your income has nothing to do with it. It's just how old you are. Older people tend to get higher premiums, so they get a little more help. Um, so under under Obamacare, Bill Gates, who has a net worth of $83 billion, he does not get any help because he is above the um, the income limit. Um, under the Republican plans, um, he would get help. He he would get actually the largest tax credit because he's um, slightly older and he's in the highest age bracket. Do, so do it as his own plan- insurance, by yes. the way. It's fine. He's he's covered by Microsoft. He's yeah. But if it, under the price bill, you know, he could um, he could get um, could you out. know the subsidy on the <laughs> individual market. So I think that is a very important shift that will be good for higher income people and very bad for lower income people. And I think because of these pre-existing condition things we were talking about earlier, the market will become likely less good for sick people and better for healthy people. The premiums will go down if you're healthy because some sick people will get pushed out of the market. But if you're sick, you will face more obstacles getting insurance. Mm -hmm. And is this like passing a crime bill that arrests more innocent people and lets more guilty people go free? What, what, what is Wait, that? I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it will yeah. help this. It will help the healthy more than the sick. It, it will. Our, I mean, the this young. is our health care. <laughs> and, and I mean, you will probably see, you know, if this price bill passes premium headlines about premiums going down and you'll see those celebrate like, look, we got rid of Obamacare. Premiums are going down. That'll likely be the effect of a lot of people, you know, some people who are older, who are sicker losing coverage. So the overall pool of people who have insurance that gets healthier and premiums go down. So I don't know that if we see premiums decline, you know, it's a question of whether you want to celebrate that or not, kind of knowing that's because we're leaving these sicker, older people out of the system. And will it be, will uh, newspaper reporters be able to definitely connect the dots between these plans that were passed and why grandpa now can't afford his medicine? I think so. I mean, I think there will be you will see from Democrats. I mean, they're already getting mobilized to really put on a full court press campaign about all these people who have health insurance, who who stand to lose it. One thing that's different about the Obamacare debate um, now than it was a few years ago is the benefits have rolled out. Like there are about 20 million people relying on the Affordable Care Act for health insurance. So you really do have a lot of actual faces of people. Um, I, you know, for some of the reporting I've been doing, I recently just tweeted, like, um, I was looking for people who are on Obamacare a few days after the election, were worried about losing coverage. You know, I received over 400 responses in 48 hours. um, And I'm sure... Democratic advocacy groups are are doing much more robust versions of like my one tweet trying to talk to people. We'll see. I, I I think the dots are much easier for Democrats to connect now than they would have been in a few a few years ago when they said, you know, look, we're going to expand insurance and these people will benefit. Now you're talking about taking something tangible away. It's not theoretical anymore. Yeah. But but then again, you've just highlighted one of the benefits of being in the opposition. It's easy to find victims and say things aren't going well than it is to preach gradual progress, even though there are some downsides. That's a, especially in America today, a very untenable position to be in. And that was the one Obama was in. 
Yeah, it's um I think the administration has always struggled with its messaging on Obamacare. I think one of the things that's been really hard for them is trying to like negotiate the space between like look, we passed this massive change and the biggest change to the um healthcare system since Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s. Oh, but also it's not a big deal. Do not worry about your employer sponsored insurance if you like your insurance, you can keep it like it was kind of a hard messaging space for them to occupy between like talking about this being a big deal, but also trying to assure people that, oh, but it's not a big deal. And like your employer sponsored insurance won't change. I am not aware of many minds who have been changed about the Affordable Care Act. Like you look at the Kaiser Family Foundation, I mentioned they do this monthly tracking poll on Obamacare. Um, They've been doing it since March 2010 when the law passed. And it's just like two divided lines you know one red and one one blue and they don't they they go up and down a little bit but people's views on the law have not changed uh, you know substantially over the past six years since it was passed sarah cliff she's read the seven laws you heard about the seven labors of hercules this is the 2016 (laughs) version she also knows a lot about law of the sea treaty we couldn't get into that she writes for vox and she's one of the panelists on the weeds podcast and coming out with her own podcast thank you so much sarah Yeah, thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Vice President-elect Mike Pence, we know, has seen at least one Broadway show. So maybe he knows about the importance of the out-of-town tryout. You see how it plays in the sticks. So Pence goes on ABC's This Week, tries out this line on host George Stephanopoulos. Well, several hundred jobs are staying, but 1,300 are still going. Well, but, well look, let's, I, I understand the glasses have full mentality of some in the, in, the, in the national media, George. National media see the glass half full? Wait a minute. All right. Luckily, Pence had his next big chance on NBC's Meet the Press. I know the glasses half empty tendency of many in the media. That's the metaphor, the platitude. Now, do I bring this up to nitpick a misstatement from Mike Pence? No, if I wanted to do that, I would play this. Well, clearly there's uh, been great tension uh, between India and Pakistan in recent days. Recent days? Pakistan and India have been disputing Kashmir since before there was a Pakistan and India. Recent days. Now, I bring up the Pence palaver to highlight a point that Chuck Todd jumped on. Well, it's not about the media, sir. What you saw happen here. Hitting the media is always a crutch for you guys. It's it's not about the media. Chuck is right. The media, especially since the election, it's it's described like the force was described in Star Wars. It penetrates and surrounds us. It binds all life forms together. Really? The media takes Trump literally, except when it doesn't, except when it should, except when it doesn't. The media is a corporate shill. The media is a destructive force for socialism. There's nothing the media isn't or can't do, except it can't do anything right. Here are the things we are told the media is incapable of doing as demonstrated by the last election, giving us facts, distinguishing between fact and fiction. And even when they do figure out which are the facts and which are the lies, they can't do anything about it. We are moving towards a more general agreement that the media is powerless to do a damn thing in its very basic role as truth arbiter. Trump rides roughshod over the media's power to do even that. And yet, at the same time, we are saying, here's something the media can do. It can normalize racists. It can normalize bigotry. It can normalize xenophobia. 
Now, I would think that just identifying an abstract concept like racism might be harder than simply knowing a basic thing that did or didn't happen. But not only is the media able to correctly identify racism, it has the power to normalize that. I used to think that this power, even if it did exist, was shaped over time, was determined by the gradual push and pull of society with stops and starts and disagreements. But apparently not. Now the media can just normalize something. And if we have the power to normalize something, we have the power to withhold normalization. It is the media that determines which views are normalized. Yet somehow, the same media cannot get the word out that millions of people didn't commit voter fraud. Sorry, that's not our job. We're busy keeping Ann Coulter from being normalized. Damn you, Comedy Central roast. Think about this formulation. Donald Trump says he witnessed thousands of Muslims celebrating on rooftops after 9-11. The media were unable to fully dispel this as fiction. And yet, in attempting to do so, they were accused of giving Trump a platform that normalized the racism inherent in the remark. The media can't dispel the notion of birtherism, but it can normalize it by giving it an airing at all. The media cannot ever shape or argue or dispel or confirm, but what it can do is focus its lens. And once it focuses its lens, it can elevate or publicize or normalize. Now, perhaps you could tell by my tone, I think that's all nonsense. I think when it comes to facts, we're holding the media to one standard. Can they fully stamp out a misimpression so that at least 90% of Americans believe the truth? That's a tall order. But then when it comes to normalization, the standard is, can it ensure that even a small percentage of Americans don't think certain opinions are okay? That's also a very difficult thing to do. Even if the media gets it right with 80-something percent of the people or 80-something percent of the time, we could say that it's failing on both counts. The media can present lots of information. At some point, it has to be up to the news consumer about what they do with it. They can believe it. They could poke holes in it. They could use it as an excuse to drive to a pizza place with a gun searching for John Podesta and Hillary Clinton's sex ring. I myself engage in media criticism because I think the media can do a good job or a bad job of informing the public or the parts of the public that can be informed. The pre-post-truth public, just like the gist is a pre-post-truth podcast. So in that vein, I offer this media critique. What I thought I heard on all those Sunday talk shows was Mike Pence appallingly sidestepping questions from the moderators. What the panelists heard on the same Sunday shows was different. Here is Matthew Dowd. I have to give Mike Pence some credit. The ability for him to maneuver around all the different tweets, the things that were said in a manner and tone that I think is, is very good for the administration. I would hope he could sort of use some of that on his boss, who would, who would be better off with more of that. And this was David Axelrod. Well, first of all, I agree with Matthew that if uh, Mike Pence were a football player, he'd be a candidate for the Heisman Trophy right now for the way he maneuvered around some of those questions. And I think he's very skillful at it. I assume this was said with a wink, but I thought Pence was a totally useless guest. And it is up to the media tack kind of pissed off about this. Not amused. Not for reasons of normalization, but simple stimulation. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who listens to the whispers of her ancestors in the morning breeze at 1.5 speed. 
The gist is also produced by Chris Berube, who hears the sounds of silence at double speed. He can't even notice the difference. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, wonders what is the sound of one hand clapping at two times speed. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, adds, well, what if the other hand is 1.5 speed? It's kind of spastic, but very zen. The gist. I watched Keanu Reeves in speed at three times speed. The bus couldn't dip under 150 miles an hour, which raised the stakes, but Keanu talked in a normal rate, which amped the dialogue. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.